from the high desert in Far East West Texas, this is the world's fastest growing sports media podcast with Ed Sports TV ratings. Joining me on the High Desert Hotline today is the Philadelphia Inquirer's Jonathan Tannenwald. Jonathan covers a range of sports for the Inquirer and Philly.com, but soccer and college basketball are his main focuses. I first ran across Jonathan on Twitter under a soccer handle at the goalkeeper uh, because TV ratings for soccer are one of the many things he keeps his followers informed about. Over time, I realized that like me, Jonathan is a Washington, D.C. native and a loyal little which for those not in the know is how fans of the former Tony Kornheiser radio show and current Tony Kornheiser podcast refer to themselves because that's how Tony Kornheiser refers to us. Jonathan, welcome to the world's fastest growing sports media podcast with that sports TV ratings. It's great to be here. I hope your rating is more than a 0.0 in 20 markets at this point. Uh, oof. Depends on the market. I think, I think, uh, I think it would be well below a 0.0 in uh, in all 56 meter markets, but I'm not making six and a half million dollars a year to be podcasting, so I don't feel too bad about that. Jonathan, when did you know? Uh, when did you first know you wanted to work in sports journalism? Well, as a kid, I grew up reading the Washington Post religiously. My mother will tell you that uh, the first four words I ever learned to read were the section headings of the post, Metro Business Style and Sports. Uh, My journalistic idol, I will admit, uh, when I was growing up, and I've said this before to people, it's not any great secret, was Tony Kornheiser. Um, I just love the the flair, the style, the authority that he wrote with. Uh, I was a fan growing up of the football team that plays out Landover, Maryland these days. It played in D.C., my hometown, when I was a kid. Uh, and they won the Super Bowl when I was in second grade, which is the perfect time for your childhood sports team of choice to win a championship. What was was that the no. Broncos? I don't I don't the say Dolphins? their name because I don't really approve of it. No, no. the team that they, oh, that they beat, beat. Sorry, in the uh, Super Bowl. they beat the Bills that year. Oh, you were in second grade in nineteen ninety two. I'm thirty three now. Okay. I was, what, gotcha. four or five when they beat the Broncos in 88? And I think I just missed the one where they beat the Dolphins. A glimmer. Not yet a um, glimmer. Uh, oh, it's go fine. Ahead, I'm sorry. I, this, th- that year, when they beat the Bills, um, produced one of the great feats of sports journalism in my lifetime still to this day. And that is the bandwagon. Um, for your list, I'm sure many of your listeners our fellow Littles, as you and I are. Um, Probably a fair few who live in the D.C. area or grew up in the D.C. area who know about the bandwagon. But if if you are out there and you don't, go do a a Google search for Tony Kornheiser Washington Post bandwagon, and it'll come up right away. It's still on the Post website. It it is just, and, and Robert, you know this, I know, it is such a, an incredible seasonal long series of stories culminating in the actual renting of an actual bandwagon, which was driven to Minneapolis for the Super Bowl that year. Yeah, I, I concur. I am, I too, although I'm not there anymore, I'm a, a D.C. native. And uh, I think Kornheiser uh, started at the Washington Post at around 79. Uh, and so he was really there for the uh, 
for the for the glory days of uh, of Joe Gibbs. And uh, that whole period was fun, but I, I, I kind of agree with you. Nothing was quite as fun as the 91-92 bandwagon. That sports section was Kornheiser, Wilbon, Boswell, obviously, who's still there and is such a brilliant baseball writer. Um, David Aldridge, Rachel Alexander, before she was Rachel Nichols, she covered the Capitals back in the day. Richard Justice, Len Shapiro, um, Jay Adande, the names of people who have gone on to, to really greatness in the profession. And that the sports section in the post these days is no slouch by any means. There's a new generation of incredible writers there led by Barry Sverluga and Dan Steinberg. Agreed. But it's just, you, you, knew, you knew and everybody who was there at the time, Robert, knew that was an incredible thing to have delivered to your doorstep every morning and read over breakfast before going to school. Absolutely. So, so you, you, you're tying a direct uh, cause and effect from, uh, from Kornheiser's bandwagon uh, to, to what you're doing now. Uh, fill, fill in the middle ground between, between the, uh, the Bills Super Bowl win or the win <laughs> over the Bills in the Super Bowl and, uh, and what you're up to now. Well, most of it has been a miserable existence as a Washington Capitals fan. That's the one sentence first. Uh, uh, I, uh, more, more in terms of uh, pursuit of, uh, of yeah, uh, sports well, journalism. I, and I, I, I know we'll get to the, the my commentary as a Washington sports fan uh, later in the broadcast. But um, I went to college at the uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. I I fell in love with the city of Philadelphia. I certainly fell in love with Penn. And to this day, live not all that far from the campus and am involved uh, on the alumni board of the student newspaper, which I wrote for for four years, retired with what was at the time a record for bylines uh, in the story database that we had at that point. Nice. Um, I honed the craft as a writer in one of the truly great sports venues in this country, what I believe to be the very best. Uh, and that is the Palestra uh, in Philadelphia, the legendary basketball arena that has been home to so many great college games since it opened 90 years ago. And the passion and the color and the emotion, not only of, of Ivy League basketball and Penn basketball, but of the Philadelphia Big Five, to be able to watch Temple and Villanova and St. Joseph's and LaSalle and even Drexel when they came across Market Street to visit, that was something really special. And you could tell a lot of great stories out of that. Right. And I, I was a a soccer fan all that time. I became a soccer fan in 1998. I was in, in France on vacation. Happened to be during the World Cup. It wasn't why I was there, but you could not help but notice the passion that folks had for the sport, folks who came from all over the world, uh, to celebrate what remains one of the great all-time World Cups. Right. Uh, capped off, of course, by Zinedine Zidane, who was – one of my favorite soccer players when I was in high school. And, uh, you know, from there, I came home, started following D.C. United, started following Major League Soccer and obviously the United States national team and uh, started getting into press boxes in around 2003. Uh, and it's gone up and up from there. I've worked for the, uh, for the Philadelphia Inquirer in various forms since September of 2006, 
Started writing about college basketball for them in January 2007. Started writing about soccer in January 2010 when the Philadelphia Union launched. And it's all gone from there. And uh, you have been at the Inquirer for uh, for just over 10 years. Do I have that right? Yeah, it's a funny thing. You know, I haven't technically been on the Inquirer's payroll. The way the company worked for a long time was the Inquirer and Daily News were commonly owned by ultimately by Knight Ritter in the end, and then by McClatchy and so on, but certainly Knight Ritter, uh, your, your listeners probably would have heard of. And then uh, because the two titles were owned by the same company, they shared a website that has long been philly.com, and that's sort of, I worked on the web staff playing Switzerland um, for the two papers, and it was a rocky ride for a long time. But now, after all these years, we're one newsroom. I'm a staff writer on the sports desk, and we are, you know, we're doing our best to survive as so many sort of metropolitan daily papers are. Okay, that sounds good. And um, you know, and I think we've talked about this before, but uh, you know, you have to, to me, you've been those ten years have been, you know, among the most uh, tumultuous for the newspaper industry as far as just a, a general shift to a more being on the web and then do, and then uh, all of the, the video and social media stuff. Um, but I get a, I, I've gotten the sense from our conversation that from your perspective, it's, it's always been that way for you at uh, philly.com since you got there. It has been, I've always been an online oriented person. Uh, in fact, I helped launched what was the Penn student newspapers sports blog as an undergrad. I've always had an inclination to go that way. And I have, I've always believed it's about the content, not just the delivery system, and sometimes not at all the delivery system. I love picking up the you know the printed paper and seeing my byline in there. And whenever I travel somewhere to cover a game, I always make sure to buy a copy of the, the local print paper. But I barely have time during the day to read the Inquirer or the right. Daily News in print. I get a digital replica version on my iPad that I skim through. I like the curated nature of it, but what matters for all of us in this business is the journalism that we commit, not how we distribute it. Right. Um, so from your perspective, um, in, in you know, any given week, uh, what percentage of, of the time are you on social media just kind of trying to either promote stuff that's on, uh, on uh, philly.com or figure, figure out uh, what you're going to write about? Assuming I sleep eight hours of the, each night, which I don't always, but let's average seven hours, let's say. Uh, I'm on social media t- 17 hours a day. So, so Twitter, Twitter's running all the time. You're, ne- you're never untethered. Very rarely. Okay. And if it's that bad, I, I remember when, uh, when, when the FIFA scandal really broke that day in Zurich and Sam Borden was perched at the hotel, you know. Right. And it all happened. It all happened at around midnight Eastern, and I was asleep because I had to be awake at 5. I, I usually wake up at around 5 in the morning Eastern time because my desk shift on the, the website is from 7 to 3.30. So it broke around midnight Eastern time, and I woke up to a barrage of tweets 
saying, somebody wake up the goalkeeper. And nobody actually did, for the record. <laughs> but that's about the only time I miss things. So uh, so you you have to make bets when you go to sleep, I guess. Um, can, can you can you just kind of take me through what a I, – I don't know if there's a typical day during, like, the college basketball season or the soccer season – uh, but, uh, you know, what a typical day looks like for you. Boy, um, I said that I wake up at about five Eastern, hit the snooze button five times, try to get out of bed before then. Um, the part of town where I live in, I, I, I try to walk a little bit, not to the subway station that's a block from me, but try to go a little farther just to get some exercise in the morning, head to work. Our, our offices are right in the middle of center city, Philadelphia on market street. So it's very easy to get to. I get there in the morning. I take a look at Twitter. I take a look at some of the local and national websites to see what stories are percolating about Philadelphia teams. Um, Sometimes I'll schedule some things for our social media accounts. I'll get to writing and I'll get to talking to people and see what's going on. My, My current job is that I'm sort of a breaking news writer. So my job is to get a story up quickly or to, aggregate somebody else. So so when you say breaking news, you, you, you mean breaking news in the sports world or more broadly? Um, it can be more broad if I'm contributing to an effort on something else, but really it's sports. Like if one of our beat guys tweets, you know, the Eagles signed somebody or the Flyers made a trade or a Phillies player is injured, I'll reach out and say, do you want me to start a story for you? And, you know, sometimes they're already on it. A lot of times, fortunately, in fact, it's a testament to our beat guys that they're already on it. Uh, but sometimes I'll start it for them or something like that, you know? Right. And then they'll take it over. Gotcha. You know, it's it's watching for things to happen. And then I, you know, I go home at 3.30 and do other things and then go to bed. And and on the uh, on the college hoops and, uh, and uh, the soccer front, how is it different for you? Or is it? Uh, it's different. I mean, I don't go to every game. I go to I go to all, I go to all the Philadelphia Union home games. College basketball, I don't go to so many games anymore. But the basketball team routine is usually show up an hour to ninety minutes before tip off. If it's a really big Villanova game at the at the Wells Fargo Center, or one where I know the Palestra is going to be sold out and it's going to be tough to move around, I'll try to get there about two hours early. Soccer games, I get there about. Two and a half hours early, the press box in Philadelphia opens two hours before kickoff. In some places, it's a little earlier when I go on the road. Um, The lineups come down an hour before kickoff. That obviously is the major currency of the realm, as your listeners who are soccer fans know. So we analyze that. I'll take out a notebook. I'll try to sort of write down a little tactical diagram of how the players are laid out so I can see who will be running at whom. Then it's usually get a bite to eat because I'm a sports writer and that's what we do. And uh, then it's game time. Nice. And then I'll down after the final whistle. In Major League Soccer, the way it works is the the home coach does a press conference, the visiting coach, unless there's a ton of media demand. Like if it's a if it's a New York City FC New York Red Bulls game, then both the coaches will do a press conference. If it's not, the home coach will do a press conference. The the visiting coach will sort of hold forth outside the locker room. Right. And the locker rooms are open. We can go in and talk to players. And for an international game, I'll tell you this story. For an international game, um, there's no locker room access. 
your, your, some of your, your listeners may know that really the U.S. and Canada are the only countries where a locker room access postgame is a thing. In the rest of the world, you'll wait in a designated area that the players will pass through walking from the, uh, the locker room to the bus. It's called a mix zone. And you will see us in a manner equivalent to trying to hail a taxi cab in New York, trying to flag the players down, get them to talk. We are fortunate uh, that the men and women who play for the U.S. national team programs get it, as do their PR people, and they'll be very good about saying, hey, Michael Bradley's going to stand here, Clint Dempsey's going to stand here, Carly Lloyd is going to stand here, Megan Rapino is going to stand here. And they're, they're good in talking to folks. They understand uh, that by telling their story, they help promote a game that still is fighting to get mainstream recognition in some ways. And it all works out, and it's a scramble upstairs to start writing and get a story done. Nice. Okay, so uh, moving moving on to ratings, I, I I came I came in contact with you because it was pretty clear to me early on that uh, you were you were pretty big into the ratings, particularly for MLS, but not exclusively. Um, and I know that right now, and it might be finished by now, you're working on a small project around soccer ratings. Um, tell us what you're working on and whether it's ready yet. It is ready enough, I would say. I have um, launched it publicly. I launched it last Friday ahead of the U.S.-Mexico game. Uh, it's not complete. I'm still waiting for a few little morsels of data to come along. But it is an attempt to chart the most watched soccer games in U.S. history. And I've done a pretty good job of it so far. I think I've got every game that has ever cleared 10 million viewers. Is that uh, 10, 10 million in any language or 10 million combined? It, it is 10 million in any language, which is part of the fun of it. Right. Okay. Uh, because soccer is a sport where the Spanish broadcast audience not only matters, but matters a lot. Uh, it goes back to 1994 and the World Cup that year. There are 43 games in the spreadsheet. There will be uh, 44th added as soon as all the U.S.-Mexico numbers are finalized for this one. And there are 27 games, to my knowledge, that have cleared 10 million viewers. I think that number might rise soon, not because of the U.S.-Mexico game Sunday night, but because with the numbers that I'm missing are streaming data from 2014 on for a couple of for the world for a couple of tournaments. The world the 2014 World Cup is one of them. I just have to yeah. So, so you've got some that are around, you know, they're over nine million now, but you don't have the streaming number. Yeah, I, I've got, I've got one that's around nine point nine million and one that's around nine point eight million that I think the streaming numbers might take it close. Gotcha. So gotcha. Um, that's that's all I'm waiting for. There, there's an interesting story to tell with this. I have not yet used the word television in this conversation, and that has been intentional. Uh, but I have used the streaming references to streaming numbers on a number of occasions because those numbers do count. At times, they are, in fact, quite large. And as the, as the way we consume these broadcasts evolve, they need to be counted. And they need to be counted honestly. Uh, the industry has settled on the average minute audience statistic because it is calculated in the same way the television viewership statistic is. 
And I'm glad they have it. I'm sure they are glad they are too. And I bet that Nielsen and Adobe and Comscore are probably glad to be relieved of the headache of having to bounce from one statistic to the next. But the story worth telling is this. The conventional wisdom is that the uh, 2015 Women's World Cup final is the most watched soccer game in U.S. history, and that is false. It is the most watched television broadcast of a soccer game in, in U.S. history. It is obviously by miles and miles the most watched English language broadcast of a soccer game right. in U.S. television history. But when you add the streaming audience in for that, and you add the second most, you take the second most watched television broadcast, which was the 2014 Men's World Cup final, and you add the streaming audience to that, the 2014 Men's World Cup final takes the prize by about 600,000 viewers. Or sorry, no, about 400,000 viewers. Yeah, it's, just, it's, it's still a, uh, a measurable margin. Yes. And there, there are games where, I'll give you an example. Uh, Mexico-Croatia at the 2014 World Cup is the last game that I have right now over 10 million viewers because the streaming audience put it there. The streaming audience for that game was 655,000 between ESPN and Univision. Right. You take that number for a television broadcast of a regular season hockey game or certainly a regular season MLS game in a heartbeat. Absolutely. The soccer fans in this country... And I think this is something we're going to get to in a bit. The soccer fans in this country are far too insecure. They, they worry about very marginal differences in television ratings. Far too much. All right. It's not just the soccer fans. So, right. so soccer fans, you're not being singled out. But the soccer fans are in a unique situation because they're worried about ratings that are rising. The baseball people and the football people, well, I don't know the football people. I wish the I wish the football ratings would fall. But the baseball people are worried about ratings that are falling. Eh, I don't know about that, Jonathan. I mean, nationally, they are. Yeah, but that so, – so nationally for the regular season games, certainly. Um, and last year – It was an outlier, you know, no? Yeah, last year was certainly an outlier. Uh, but I, I think – and, you know, this may ultimately become pertinent, uh, particularly for MLS as well – um, I think baseball is still very strong uh, in, you know, on the regional RSNs, Comcast, NBC, you know, whatever the, they're calling their, their, their RSNs now. Um, the one I can't get on my television is what it's called. What can't you get on your television? I cannot get the, uh, the regional sports network here in Philadelphia because it, it has never had a carriage deal with Dish Network or DirecTV. Ah, so they're, they're, they're saying if you live in Philadelphia – and you want this, you got to have cable. In fact, very famously, Comcast's claim to the FCC for all the years when you could not get Comcast Sportsnet on any other cable system until Verizon Fios finally wrote them a big enough check that they backed down was that it, CSN was only distributed within the Comcast coaxial cable system, which was a ruse that was later exposed. But anyway... The the MLS ratings go up nationally about 7% a year. I would take that in a heartbeat, in a bigger picture mindset, which is what I try to be. You know, Fox's numbers might be down a little bit this year because they've had some bad games and because nobody watches FS1 
outside of live programming. But ESPN is up from what I have heard. Univision is up from what I have heard. So, yeah, Univision unfortunately now has a window. It's like a you know a four p.m. game on a weekend that uh, I rarely see the numbers for. They are tracked by the real insiders in the soccer realm. I can probably go get them. The reason why they do that is because during the Mexican League season, they use that as a lead-in to the first Mexican League game of the Saturday night, which I think is a pretty smart strategy. Me too. I agree. And the reason why they have Mexican League games on Saturday night now is when the great Don Francisco hung up his microphone and Sabado Gigante came to an end, they needed to find something to fill in the ratings gap, and the only thing they had, and not without reason, was Mexican League soccer, so they put it there. I don't blame them. And that is the most popular soccer league in this country by some distance, by the way. Understood. One thing, and, you know, we're on this subject now. Um, It's always kind of fascinated me uh, how sports fans sometimes do take the ratings uh, a little or or even a lot personally. And, uh, you know, I'm seeing it. it, You can pick any day, and I'll I'll see it in some fashion. Today, how I saw it, what manifest was – um, some disgruntled hockey fans complaining that a uh, a game, you know, a clinching game in the Stanley Cup final, you know, either either got around the same or barely beat uh, a World Cup qualifier with uh, with some angst from the uh, from the from the hockey fans, and I've seen uh, I've seen soccer fans pull similar shenanigans against other stuff. And it's just a, it's just a very interesting perspective to me because my take is last night was really good for soccer and for hockey. They both had really good nights, and and uh, neither uh, neither league and uh, neither fan base uh, should be unhappy about it. Uh, how do you think about those things? I think that neither fan base should be unhappy about it. I'm with you, but the hockey fans are a sensitive lot. That's for sure. Um, I am surprised that the Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. markets uh, were in the top 10 of the ratings, averaging a 1.6 and 1.5, respectively, during the Stanley Cup final. Because I don't know a soul in either city who can tolerate watching the Penguins win the thing. Uh, uh, I think there is, you know, you don't know a soul because people people don't tell you that they're watching. That's, That's one of the reasons why I like Nielsen. It, it measures what people actually do versus uh, what they, they say they do. So we yeah, know I, you're out there, Caps fans, who watch the Stanley Cup final. I hate watching at least, I hope. <laughs> well, could have been rooting for uh, Nashville, maybe. Yes, that's true. That's No, I, I was rooting for Nashville. I just can't, couldn't bear to watch. I don't believe you. I think you watched. No, I did not watch a second of it. You're not a Nielsen household, so I won't be able to. Uh, I won't be able to track it down whether you did I, or didn't. I'll, I have, I'll I believe thought, you. I've thought over the years about becoming one. I've told a lot of soccer fans over the years the number one thing you can do as a soccer fan in this country is become a Nielsen household. <laughs> that that applies to any league, any sport, any TV show you're a fan of. The best thing you can do to help is is to uh, to become a Nielsen household. Um, so. What is your uh, 
what is your version of, hey, just relax and enjoy it um, that, that you would give fans? Because I know, and we've talked about this a little bit, um, you're on the soccer beat, but you're also, um, and you disclose this, uh, you're kind of an ambassador, uh, particularly for MLS, but, uh, but more broadly soccer in general. Um, so how do you, you know, what's your, what's your advice for the fans? And then sort of how do you balance the, the ambassadorship with the reporting? I mean, look, I think up to a point, everybody in every sport is an ambassador for that sport. The baseball writers are an ambassador for baseball, even though they like to be all high-minded and say, you know, that they're, 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 look, they say they're the guardians of the game, right? Therefore, that must make them ambassadors in some form. You can't tell me that Peter King is not an ambassador for football or or Eric Dohachik or, you know, Bob McKenzie, an ambassador for hockey. Yep, I agree. Um I'm a fan of the sport. I'm not a fan of any teams. I mean, look, I'm supp- I'm a something of an Arsenal fan, but I'm a disgruntled Arsenal fan because they just do nothing every year. I'll watch a good game no matter where it's played, no matter what language the broadcast is in, because that is the joy of the sport. You can wake up on a Saturday morning and watch a game from Germany or England or France, and then in the afternoon watch a game from MLS, and at night watch one from Mexico. And if you live on the West Coast, in the middle of the night you can watch one from Australia. That's the joy of it. And I prefer to celebrate that than to jump on this, that, or the other thing. I think the English Premier League is overrated, but not, you know, other than that, uh, that's o- the joy o- of the sport. Overrated in terms of the, in terms of the quality or overrated in terms of the attention that it gets in the United States? Uh, quality of the product, which results in attention that it gets in the United States. It, 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 I did a lot of sociology in college. And there's this thing called the received elite to mass theory. I don't know if you've heard of it in your travels. I, I have heard of it, but uh, but give a, yeah. give a quick breakdown. You get somebody in New York or Los Angeles or some such who is a trendsetter and is exclusive and latches on to something. And everybody wants to be a part of that thing, so they go chasing after it, especially if they're a Brooklyn hipster with an interest in being able to drink a beer at 730 in the morning. Uh and, and and they find friends at the bar and so on that they don't have when they're just sitting at home and so on and so forth. I can go on about way on about that down way deep rabbit hole, but I won't. Um, so they're the cool people, right? You know, they're the cool people. And and so th- they, it, it becomes then the thing that the people follow, the trendsetters and on and on and on they go and so forth. For your listeners who want an example of this, do a Google search for New York Times piece, excuse me, New York Times trend piece, English soccer men in blazers. Um, in fact, I'll do it right now while I'm on the phone, on the line. Times trend piece, men in blazers. Uh, there was a seminal, very authoritative thing on this. Written, here it is, in April of 2014 in the New York Times fashion section of the headline, their game, comma, now ours. Soccer, comma, particularly English, excuse me, soccer, comma, particularly England's Premier League, comma, 
growing in popularity in New York creative circles. Go on and read that. And uh, off it went. It's just, it's total bandwagon of the, of the lowest order. But, this, but isn't that good? I mean, from your perspective as an ambassador, isn't that still good? It, it, it mm-hmm. is good. It is good because any sport needs casual fans to become truly popular. But the combination of Anglophilia, beer, uh, expensive beer, and Brooklyn, and creative industry types can make for an excruciating experience sometimes. <laughs> Because they actually want this. The the dirty little secret about a lot of these folks is that they actually want the thing to remain exclusive so that they can feel cooler than the dumb people and holier than thou. And I hate that. When, When people talk about an authentic soccer experience, they mean small. There is no such thing as a large, authentic soccer experience in the minds of people over here who look up to that sort of thing as what they idealize. When the truth is that the English Premier League is incredibly corporate, And the best soccer experience in Europe of all is in Germany, where the crowds are the biggest in Europe by a mile. The stadiums are huge, and that's part of the fun of it. How come – so, so, you know, the Anglophile thing, though, um, the the Bundesliga – and, yeah, some of that's because of FS1, but it's just not – it's just not getting anywhere near the – Because the Bundesliga doesn't have the hipster crowd the same way. In fact, it has the, the next level of hipster crowd of people who actually, I'm going to be condescending here for a minute towards the English hipster crowd, but I do that all the time. A lot of really knowledgeable soccer people watch the Bundesliga and love it and don't watch the English league nearly as much. So you're, you're, you're telling me that, that most of the knowledgeable soccer people don't live in the United States then? Well, no, that or there aren't that many of them. In the end of the day. Right. But if you watch a Bundesliga game, it is fantastic. If you watch a Spanish league game, it's probably second to the Bundesliga, and the quality of soccer trumps the English league by mile. But the English league has the perception of being the most competitive and most glamorous. Obviously, it's got so much money. We know that. But it's got the TV deal and the glamour and so on and so forth. And so it's perceived as being better than it actually is. So, so if you were Fox and you had, uh, you had Bundesliga, what, if anything, would you do differently in their shoes? Well, there are a few things that I would do differently. I would endeavor to put more games on over the air, even though I know there's only so much they can do about that. I would endeavor to put more games on FS1, although there's only so much they can do about that because NASCAR draws more fans right. than soccer, as does college football. I would endeavor to put games with American players on more than they have done so far. They tend to prioritize Bayern Munich. I understand why. So so you're saying Dortmund, Dortmund, Dortmund. Well, not just Dortmund, but Hamburg with Bobby Wood and any others that come along. But I would would play Dortmund over Bayern Munich at this point. I think so. You know, I'll have to to, uh, track down one of the people who who looks at all those schedules to see – you know, what was the, the mix of uh, Dortmund games versus others? Because I, I think you, that if you I'm go the, to Philly.com slash Bundesliga, you'll see my schedule from this past season. I've retired from the agate business, but that was the last one I did. And you'll see 
you'll, you'll be able to, to surmise it from there. It's, it's, uh, uh, I'm going to guess it's different next year. I hope so. Well, I mean, uh, uh, and and you will correct me, uh, Pulisic, he's the real deal so far. What else do they have? Yeah, because you can't you can't guarantee that he's going to play in every game. That's the problem. Oh, in the Bundesliga, right? So yeah. the question is, if he doesn't play, are you better off showing Dortmund or Bayern? I think, from an entertainment perspective, especially if Dortmund's at home, you're better off showing Dortmund. But that's my own opinion. Thank you. Um, so we we talked about this a little bit. Um, because you mentioned that I think that, uh, that, uh, year over year MLS health is, is looking pretty good. Uh, but overall for soccer in general, what's your take on the, the general health, uh, of soccer as a, a TV sport? And I will define TV as any way you can watch it, uh, in the U S and then specifically for the MLS. I think soccer as a whole is in rude health. There is an increasingly global conclusion that this is the best country in the world to be a soccer fan in. because the games are all at reasonably convenient hours in the morning and the afternoon and you can watch every league of consequence almost every game you cannot in england watch the vast majority of premier league games on television or online legally because the government bars the broadcasting of games in the primary broadcast window which is three o'clock p.m local time, 10 a.m. U.S. Eastern, for the purpose of driving attendance to games, especially at the lower divisions, because that's the hour when so many teams play. And I, I get it, but every English broadcaster over there who I know thinks it's absurd that you can watch those games in the entire rest of the world or at a bar in England that has a way of hooking it up, but you can't do it within that country itself. Yeah, so, so, so back to these being the, uh, the salad days for, uh, for the soccer fan in the U.S. Um, look, I think MLS is in good health. It obviously could always be in better health. The TV ratings are the biggest issue. Um, and and, and I'll, I'll just interject they're the biggest issue nationally. I don't yes. honestly know what the uh, what the MLS um, numbers look like on the on the local RSNs, and it wouldn't surprise me to find like baseball. It's largely regional and it's doing pretty well, but it's, I can't say. Yeah, that I for haven't sure. seen numbers for Philadelphia in a while. Although the union games don't do very well here in Seattle and Portland and Atlanta, they do well. I don't know about the rest, um, but. A funny way in which the MLS crowd is similar to the baseball crowd is that the local audience doesn't watch the national game if their team isn't in it. And that's one of the biggest hurdles that MLS has to overcome. And obviously one of the best ways to do that is to keep signing star players and then to develop the American players and try to keep them around for as long as you can. But that's a long-term process. Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a, that's a, that's a tough hurdle, I think. For, that's a tough problem to solve for anyone. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think really any, anybody but football, any league but fo- NFL and uh, college football have really cracked that in the U.S. And I largely think that's probably got to be because of gambling and fantasy, um, not, not so much anything else. Well, you can gamble on MLS, but it's not nearly as big a deal as, uh, as other sports or even 
sometimes with the English sports, although Major League Soccer does have a daily fantasy deal with DraftKings, which can help. It can't. It certainly. It certainly can't hurt. Okay. So, any uh, any final soothing words of wisdom for fans who, even after everything you've said, will still fret over whatever soccer ratings they see public publicly. No. I've been. I've spent the last decade trying to convince them, and I haven't yet. I, I'm, I'm hearing that. Uh, I'm hearing that. Uh, what, whatever. Whatever I might think is is the most effective thing that you've done. You don't think it's been that effective. I mean, I think it's been effective to some people. Just have a little bit of confidence and a little bit of long-term perspective and stop freaking out about every little thing. I, I will uh, I will go one further. Um, MLS isn't getting canceled. Um, Premier League certainly isn't getting canceled. Bundesliga is not getting canceled. Um, was it the, the, the Spanish League is, is on – is that on BN? The Spanish and Italian and French leagues are on BN Sports, yes. Um, so I don't know about what BN's availability is uh, nationally, uh, but I know that they're trying to grow that. So, um, you know, I, I, I would think that BN's distribution will continue to grow, and so that, that will, those games will be available to more people. But, but at any rate, the games aren't going away. They're not going to get canceled off of television, and even if there's – uh, you know, right swapping where, you know, instead of Fox and ESPN, it's someone else. They're still going to be around. They're still going to be available to people. And uh, don't worry about the ratings. If you're now, if you work for the league, worry about the the ratings all you want. But as a fan, I say don't worry. Fine by me. You you agree, or you you think there's more to it? No, oh, I think that's fine with me. Jonathan, thank you very much. And uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna add on here that uh, um, because of my goof, uh, Jonathan had to do this twice, and I really appreciate uh, you taking the time to do it. It's my pleasure. I'll, I'll tell very quickly the story that um, I told at the beginning of the first go around, which is I grew up in D.C. all of about six blocks from the artist formerly known as Chadwick's, then Chad's, now Chatter. It was a site of many family dinners when I was a kid. I loved the restaurant still, and my parents are moving out of the house that they lived in for 46 years, which is a fairly rare thing in the district, and they're moving to a condo that fortunately is still within walking distance of the place. So it is my goal to get down there at some point this year on a weekday morning and go watch podcast taping. It's uh, Someday in my life I want to do something that gets me on that show. I have no idea what it will be. You've you've got name dropped on that show several times. Yeah, I have been I have been name dropped on a few occasions. Um, I so I've been friends with Michael for many years. I gave him a tour of Penn back in the day, and we've been friends ever since. Michael went to Penn, played golf there. Tony uh, was friends with a former uh, the former athletic director of Penn, Steve Bilsky. But Michael. To his great credit, certainly got in on his own merits. He's a pretty smart kid. Pretty good golfer, too, from what I hear. Yeah. Um, and I know Liz Clark and David Aldridge and a few of the other folks. And it's uh, someday I'll do something. I'd like to do something professionally prominent enough that gets me on the show. I'd be happy with some kind of anonymous that at Sports TV ratings guy shout out, even if it was just to mock me. Maybe someday. Uh, thanks again to Jonathan Tannenwall for joining the podcast. No DBAP, don't be a putt segment this week. But uh, if you're desperate for a rant, 
you can check out the post titled, How to Use Facebook's Mostly Meaningless Reach Stats and Still Do Some Factual Ratings Reporting on SportsTVRatings.com. Next time on the world's fastest growing sports media podcast with at Sports TV Ratings, Oriana Schwint. She's at Schwinter on Twitter. That's S-C-H-W-I-N-D-T-E-R. And Oriana was one of the best, if not the best, media reporters when it came to the reporting of TV ratings. And uh, we'll definitely spend some time talking about ratings reporting. Alas, unfortunately for me, Oriana gave up the media beat for Centerville, USA, which I describe as a project to get to know parts of America she wasn't even sure really existed before last fall. But uh, I'll let Oriana describe it for herself next time on the world's fastest growing sports media podcast with that sports TV ratings. One regular on the Tony Kornheiser podcast has to go. Who is it? Oi. Come on, say Saliza. Ha! Only because Howard Feynman's kid went to Penn. <laughs> Chris gets booted off the island. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>